Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Open Banking Expo Unplugged. I'm Ellie Duncan, Head of Content here at Open Banking Expo and I'm going to be steering the conversation for the next 30 minutes or so and my guest today is Nathan Kinch, entrepreneur and impact investor. Nathan is a four times founder, an international speaker and a social impact investor. For the past decade, he's helped various organizations worldwide with the design of their products and services. And he's worked on open banking in the UK and Australia's consumer data rights to help establish some kind of guidelines for more ethical data practices and better consent based data sharing. Welcome, Nathan. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Not at all. And uh, I know you're joining us from Australia, where you live with your family now, after a few years in, in the UK and uh, various other places. So um, thanks for joining me today. And I know I gave you kind of a, a brief overview there of your of your career, but perhaps uh, I know you have lots of strings to your bow, so maybe you can go in a bit more detail uh, as to your, your background and, and what you're up to at the moment. Yeah, look, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll keep it reasonably brief. Uh, hopefully we have more interesting things to talk about than that. Uh, when I was a kid, I was an athlete, a competitive athlete, and I, I, I really thought I was going to have a professional career um, and had bad nerve damage in my back uh, when I was about 15. And uh, by the age of 18, I was really struggling, uh, no longer enjoying the sport, uh, living in the US at the time, uh, and ended up coming home back to Australia going, like, what am I going to do with my life? I have no idea. You know, I really truthfully thought I was on a particular trajectory and, and maybe, you know, uh, there's a bit of naivety there when you're, uh, when you're young. Uh, and I, I sort of bounced around with different ideas and different opportunities and ended up uh, joining uh, a few mates and, and building a clothing label and that went really well in lots of different ways. I then built uh, basically a predictive analytics startup uh, in the sports space to try and solve the, the injury problem that, that I myself had experienced. Uh, I then became an entrepreneur in residence, uh, and throughout all of this time, uh, I was becoming fascinated with power and uh, information flows and the way in which digital technologies were impacting society uh, for better or for worse. Um, and and uh, during that 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 entrepreneur in residence role, which you may know, is sort of like a bit of a holding role. Often you're trying to you're trying to figure your your stuff out, and uh, I got to dive much deeper into to all of that. Uh, uh, those those sort of uh, transdisciplinary um, uh, areas of focus uh, and, and figured like, I, I want to spend more time doing this. I want to figure out how we can solve some of these problems. It feels like a really meaningful thing to do. So I ended up moving to the UK. I was uh, in a leadership role at a really exciting Aussie startup called Miko. Uh, and we were doing some wonderful work at the forefront of the personal information economy. But really from the perspective of like, how do we make this better for people, for individuals, not just for organizations, for them too, but, but how do we take that kind of like person first approach? Uh, and whilst I was doing all of that, I developed a, a reasonably systematic way to help organizations design more trustworthy products and services. Uh, my wife joined me in the journey of co-founding a company called Greater Than X. Uh, and that was, that was great for a number of years. Uh, we actually decided uh, about two months back to, to shut up shop um, I, I, I'm also the co-founder of a community platform called Greater Than Learning. I've now stepped back from that as well. I'm kind of technically taking a bit of a break at the moment, which is really cool. Um, just 
breakfast, going out for breakfast with my daughter and doing all different types of things. Uh, so that's really fun. I'm, I'm in this sort of transitionary phase uh, in my life where I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that the next thing that I really want to do is focused on uh, social impact, maybe through social impact investing, uh, but, but bringing my, my, my skills and experience in applied ethics and responsible innovation to the table to, to try and augment uh, what I'm able to do. So that like, you know, there's lots of nuance there, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. And uh, if there's anything else you want to dive into, happy to do it. Great. Uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot to dive into, I think. And it's interesting you mentioned kind of uh, along the way there that you mentioned kind of this proliferation of data and uh, kind of use the phrase for better or worse. And, and I think that's quite interesting, really, because um, I wanted to come on to ask you a bit about kind of consumer trust, um, not just in open banking, but in this kind of data sharing more generally. Um, I wondered what kind of trust means to you and um, do you think it's kind of important that that we that organizations in this space build that trust with consumers because that is something that consumers have expressed there they're a bit concerned about aren't they you know all this data flying around what's what's really happening with it that kind of thing yeah like, like it's it's super important um you know no, so, so trust is uh, something that i think is intuitively reasonably well understood um but when you dive into the details and you start trying to get more explicit, I don't think it is particularly well understood, uh, either at kind of like the individual level or at an organizational level. And, and so trust, like many other areas of uh, research, focus, however you want to frame it, um, uh, you know, there are contradictions in, in the literature. There, there is a lot of literature uh, and so it can it can just be confusing, but uh, in in essence, uh, trust is often uh, thought of as basically being like uh, hope about expectations fulfilled. And there's this uh, researcher and uh, speaker, uh, uh, public figure Rachel Botsman at uh, Oxford, that that refers to trust as confidence in the unknown. I like to sort of clarify high confidence in the unknown. Um, and so it, it really is this. Um, this uh, this phenomenon that 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 is that is super integral to the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we interact with the world, but particularly in situations where we can't verify that something might be true, uh, which is why often people refer to like like a trust leap. Um, but but trust is trust is also complex. You know, it's it's two ways. It's influenced by a variety of different factors like cultural beliefs and you know, context, um, the, the information that you have access to, um, you know, your identity value, like all these different types of things. When you specifically look at data trust, as in the trust that, that, that individuals, consumers, if you will, place in an organization's data practices, the, the picture's pretty bleak. Uh, and th there's quite a lot of literature on this, but I actually think the, the 2019 Pew Privacy Study did a reasonable job of highlighting this. And Basically, they propose that there's American focus in, in this particular case, but it seems to play out somewhat consistently uh, in different parts of the world, that American consumers were more concerned than ever before. And they didn't believe that the value they were getting in return for being surveilled was even close to worth it. Uh, and, and I think over the last few years, we have seen a, a, a sort of shift in the narrative, you know, 
everyday folks are chatting about this stuff, um, whether it be situational or, or it be kind of like more chronic, you know, the, the things like the Cambridge Analytica scan, scandal certainly come to mind as high profile uh, issues. Organizations are thinking much more intentionally about this because their their businesses are completely dependent on their ability to access and process and utilize data in ways that, that hopefully deliver value to, to people and society and in in return, uh, enable the organization to generate value, uh, you know, in the form of money. <laughs> so, you know, they're really dependent on on people uh, trusting them. But uh, at present, I, I would say that if I were to summarize, um, most organizations are doing a reasonably poor job um, at, 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 at responsibly uh, utilizing data and enabling the uh, people that the data relates to to actively participate in that process. Uh, and 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 that combined with lots of other complex nuance and somewhat ambiguous factors contributes to uh, what we often refer to as the data trust gap or data trust deficit. Uh, and, and it's not really great for business. I, I think um, th- there is good evidence to suggest that the and you know again there's there's always uh, variance to this, but there's good evidence to suggest that organizations that sort of enhance the trustworthiness of their data practices realize a variety of different benefits. Uh, so is it important? Yeah, absolutely. It should be like one of one of the key leadership priorities for, um, for leaders and practitioners operating businesses that are heavily dependent on information or data. Uh, and that's pretty much all of them nowadays. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, what, what can financial institutions, you know, the, the the big banks, the lenders, some of the new kind of challenges that we see, what what can they do to kind of bridge that gap, you know, restore some trust or what should they be doing? It's Look, it's another wonderful question. Um, I, I, how to describe this simply? So, so there is a, a, a sort of a trust re- researcher expert, I'm not sure exactly how to frame it, but uh, in, in the UK, her name's uh, Baroness uh, Onora O'Neill. She has a wonderful TED talk on this topic. And, and, and she uh, somewhat uh, beautifully and simply uh, provides, I think, a pretty good answer to that. And it's, it's, it's number one, be trustworthy. Number two, give evidence of your trustworthiness. Uh, and note the focus on trustworthiness, not trust. Uh, now, a, a, a a colleague that I've done some work with, Hilary Sutcliffe, uh, led a project uh, called TIGTEC, which was effectively a, a three-year systematic review into the trust literature, looking at all different you know, evolutionary psychology, motivational psychology, different areas of the social science, etc. Um, and they came out of this with seven drivers of trust. Uh, number one, intent, like acting in the public's interest, competence, respect, uh, openness, integrity, fairness, and inclusion. And so what I would say at a high level, and we, we can certainly get a bit more granular, but at high level, organizations should focus on being trustworthy by design, and they should provide solid evidence of their trustworthiness. And they should do that by uh, enacting, behaviorally enacting those qualities, those those attributes of trustworthiness. Um, uh, now, that I think is a really great place to start because then organizations can go, all right, well, what do these things mean to us? What does it mean to act in the public's interest? What does competence mean in the specific context of the relationships that we have with, with individuals and communities? What does it mean to be respectful? How can we best be, be open and transparent and vulnerable to the actions of others? How might we best act with integrity? What does fairness mean given the role that we want to play in the world? Um, and how do we actively include the people that we uh, 
that we intend to benefit through our products and services in the process of doing all of this. Really great place to start. Uh, and arguably that should that should start with boards and executive committees, but it can't just be a top-down thing. It really has to be like a like a middle-out thing in, in many ways. It has to be top-down, bottom-up, you know, all over the organization, whole of organization approach. Uh, and then there are much more specific things in the context of of privacy, data protection, data ethics that organizations can do fundamentally better. Um, you know, don't use uh, manipulative design patterns. Sometimes they're referred to as dark patterns. Uh, I think manipulative design patterns is sort of a friendlier term, but it, but, but it captures uh, what organizations are doing. Um, so don't prey on people's cognitive biases um, in, in such a way that it leads to your advantage. Uh, don't utilize uh, information disclosures that are thousands upon thousands of words that, uh, that read at postgraduate reading level. Um, and surface them in the context of a two to three minute onboarding experience and expect people to actively agree. Well, they don't. We have the behavioral event logs to show that no one engages with that stuff. Find different ways. Um, you know, procure vendors and utilize technologies that are more privacy preserving or privacy enhancing by design. Um, you know, so there's lots of very tactical, very practical and pragmatic things that organizations can do. But I think that uh, going back to uh, Baroness or Nora O'Neill's perspective, like start with that, be trustworthy, give evidence of your trustworthiness and start asking really hard questions about what that means to do uh, do that, you know, in your context, in practice. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to, um, to dig into there, but I wanted to pick up on a phrase that you used, which was data ethics. We hear that quite a lot now, don't we? Mm. Um, and I was wondering if you can kind of elaborate on that um, and explain you know, how seriously should firms take this in relation to open banking and then the next step, which is open finance? So what is data ethics? Um, arguably, the the most sort of broadly uh, agreed definition, and there is no formal definition for what uh, data ethics is, but uh, Luciano Floridi and some colleagues put together a, a sort of like a framing piece back in 2016 for the Royal Society. Uh, answer, like asking and, and then and through their their uh, their prose attempting to answer the question what is data ethics um, and they refer I, I'm, I'm actually going to read this if you don't mind because it's very long and then I want I, I, I would then like to get a little bit more practical because this is almost all encompassing so they propose that data ethics is a new branch of ethics that studies and evaluates moral problems related to data including generation recording curation processing dissemination sharing and use algorithms, including artificial intelligence, artificial agents, machine learning, and robots, and corresponding practices, including responsible innovation, programming, hacking, professional codes, in order to formulate and support morally good solutions, e.g. right conduct, conducts or right values. Now, you'll see from that that that's quite, that's quite extensive. Um, yeah. We, um, in, in, in our work, have... have uh, tended not to focus on the semantics of what the definition of data ethics is um, and, and focus uh, more on like how we actually do it. And I'll explain why really quickly. A lot of money has been spent around the world by uh, organizations of all types, commercial organizations, public benefit corporations, governments, research and policy institutes, etc. And what they've done uh, out of this work is publish uh, principles, AI ethics principles, data ethics principles, etc. And as far as we can tell, and there's some great analysis from the AI Ethics Lab on this particular subject, uh, 
all of these published principles of which hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent uh, feed very nicely into four categories. And uh, what that leads me to believe is we generally agree on, on the things that we should be valuing, the principles that we should be fighting to defend. What matters now is, is what do we do? How do we enact these principles? How do we operationalize them? And so our work at Greater Than X uh, in the context of, of data ethics and operationalizing data ethics was focused on attempting to answer that question, like how might we effectively operationalize these principles in a way that, that enhances capability within an organization that actually materially changes behavior and as a result directly impacts positively the products and services that make their way into the hearts, minds, wallets, etc., of folks, good folks out in the real world. Uh, and we did that based on this perspective that organizations should uh, attempt to operationalize a data ethics framework or, cons- uh, or system. And that's effectively the, the consistent process and practices that they use to decide, to document, and to verify that their data processing activities are socially preferable. And by social preferability, I mean overwhelmingly supported by their key stakeholder groups. Uh, And and we build out um, sort of like um, systems-based, complex systems-based, systems uh, change-based sort of approaches to to how they might do that. In the context of open banking and and open finance generally, I I feel that this is a a very important area of focus. And some of our work with uh, the Open Banking Implementation Entity or Open Banking Limited uh, back in 2019 touched on this. We were hired by uh, Miles Cheatham, who was the head of uh, propositions at the time, to uh, basically develop the next uh, set of guidance for third-party providers, TPPs. Um, And that was was about codification of consent, um, new design patterns, et cetera. But it was also about information disclosure. How do we do that better? And it was also about data ethics. How can we start supporting organizations participating in open banking regimes to, to be more ethical and responsible? Um, in their their sort of end-to-end life cycle of of data practices. Um, And the reason I think it's super important is because open banking uh, and open finance generally relies upon uh, what I think is a somewhat risky assumption, risky because it's highly uncertain, uh, that people will actively and happily share their data. That's kind of like a a precondition of open banking and related initiatives working around the world. Um, you know, because because we use consent, uh, and this is a, a challenging topic, and we could probably uh, nerd out on that for a long time. We, we probably won't, but uh, you know, PSD two consent is different to GDPR consent, and uh, you know, there, there's just va- variance in in these things, which makes it somewhat challenging. So, if I say consent, you might think one one thing, and I might mean another. So, I'll I'll just sort of use the word permission as a as a way to get around that. So, people need to grant their permission. Uh, explicitly as part of some process for an organization to process their data in such a way that it hopefully delivers them some form of unique value. Uh, Now, at the moment, most data sharing is passive, meaning we're not explicitly asked to do things, just like the the client-server architecture of the web. Like every time we log on to a service or use an app or whatever, like data is being shared. Data is going from one server to another. Um, and, and so most of that kind of happens. It's like a background processing activity. It's not, it's not really surfaced. Um, and then when you start surfacing all of these consent sort of requests uh, or however you want to think about them, notifications, um, such as cookie consent, which is just a systematic failure in so many different ways, we get consent fatigue. Uh, so, so we're in this challenging space where 
for open banking to work, we, we need people to trust the ecosystem, trust the rules, trust the parameters of the eco, all these different types of things. But we also need them to trust the data practices and the way that the organizations are using data, the accuracy of the data, et cetera. Um, and an operational approach to data ethics can, can, from my perspective, I would argue, act as a really strong foundation for not just individual organizations participating in open banking, wanting to do better, wanting their customers to more actively and happily share information so they can deliver new and unique value. But it can also act as a really powerful foundation for the, uh, the bodies uh, and the organizations that are responsible for setting the rules, guidelines, et cetera. Uh, and that's something that we've long advocated for. And, I th- you know, I think we're making little bits of progress, but we've got some ways to go. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, I mean, there, there's so much we could we could probably talk for another few hours potentially. Um, but um, I, I'm going to move on slightly, I suppose, just to dig a little bit deeper into the kind of um, something else that that you talk about. The kind of other aspect, I suppose, of, of your career, your background, which is sort of this responsible innovation, positive social impact. Um, and I was wondering, perhaps, firstly, if you can explain what you mean by by those phrases and um, yeah, what, what do they mean to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, I might just, I might start with the positive social impact thing. Um, yeah. If that's okay, because I, I think it, it uh, it's kind of like the parent of, of responsible innovation and lots of other uh, related disciplines. Uh, there is uh, at present a big focus all around the world on impact Um in organizations of all kinds, uh, public, private, etc. cetera. Uh, in, in investing, there is impact investing, there is ESG, environmental, social governance, um, there is socially responsible investing, and they all actually mean different things, but sometimes they're just shoved um, under a sort of impact banner, um, and that's a little bit confusing. You then have organizations talking about impact, and that might be via some specific impact methodology. It might be you know, they've committed to try and um, demonstrate some level of progression towards uh, uh, towards the sustainable development goals, as a for instance, or they might um, they might have aligned themselves to some higher order metric, uh, like um, well being adjusted life years or something like that. And so there's there's just a lot going on. But but typically, like impact is is a neutral statement. It's a market effect or influence on someone or something. Um, yeah, but that, I, I believe that's a formal definition. That's what I've got in my head anyways. Uh, when I refer to positive social impact, I'm talking about engaging in activities that causally contribute to the betterment of people's lives and the betterment of the natural world uh, that, that we rely upon, you know, Earth's life-giving systems. That's really what I'm referring to. And when I think of responsible innovation, I'm thinking about, and what is innovation? Well, innovation is something that's new, um, uniquely useful and successful. Uh, and so, so we want to do something that's new. We want to do something that's uniquely useful and we want to do it so it's successful because if it's, if it's uniquely useful, um, we really want it to be successful because it's going to help people. And if it's not new, then it's not innovation. So, 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 um, and there might be folks that that, that, that d- debate the semantics on the parameters of of my sort of definition there, but that's cool. And then, you know, <clears throat> by responsible, I, I'm really referring to um, uh, as part of the innovation process with intentionality, um, uh, designing for those seven qualities of trustworthiness that I referred to before, but also explicitly optimizing for positive social impact. Um, and the the processes, the practices, the inputs 
that we feed into that responsible innovation uh, arena um, are what enable us to, to, to do that reasonably well. And it's by no means a new field. There are folks that have been uh, describing that as their practice for, for decades, potentially. Um, but it is arguably becoming far more popular, particularly in the context of big tech, uh, stuff that comes out of Silicon Valley, etc. You know, you've, you kind of have a bit of a responsible innovation movement at the moment. And I think that's awesome. Um, I would argue the movement is very early. Uh, and that is, that is, I think, just a, an assessment. It's not even a criticism. It's just an assessment of where we are. We have, we have collectively a very long way to go. Okay. But there's this sort of growing awareness of it then. Um, I believe so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are lots of markers to suggest that's the case. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, I wanted to uh, also talk about the consumer data rights. Um, mm-hmm. And um, if, if people listening hadn't noticed, you, you are Australian. You, you currently reside in Australia. You, you've moved back there. Um, and, and I know you've, you've done some work uh, on this. So um, I was just wondering, you know, in your opinion, how well is, um, is all of this playing out? And how well is, is CDR being sort of delivered in Australia, do you think? So I'm a, li- I'm a little bit removed from the operational details now and have been for quite some time. The, the, last, the last time I was supporting the standards body, the, the DSB, the data standards body, was in 2019. So it's a little while ago now. Um, and the last time I was supporting a commercial organization was sort of leading into 2020, um, supporting a commercial organization in preparing to participate in, in open banking. So I've, I have been a little bit removed. And I, and I, I want to uh, caveat what I'm, whatever I'm going to say with that, because I recognize there will be gaps in my, gaps in my knowledge. Uh, what I would suggest is that um, the consumer data right has uh, the potential for a lot of substance. It is, in effect, uh, a national infrastructure project, a national digital infrastructure project. It's not funded that way. Um, they've been a bit stingy on the funding, frankly. Uh, <laughs> let's hope that changes. Um, yeah. You know, because if we're funding, if we're funding, you know, a, a, ro- a road project, which is a national infrastructure project, or even a state infrastructure project, we we throw lots of money at it. So you know, when you consider this, this has the potential to be the the foundation uh, of how Australian citizens and residents are interacting with digital society, which I believe it does have that potential. Uh, we, should, we should probably invest in it appropriately uh, and be thoughtful and intentional about that. Um, I think that uh, CDR, um, a little bit different to open banking because it has more of like a, a in the UK, like a, a, an example that this could be likened to is probably like the smart data um, review and the work that's being done on smart data to sort of extend open banking to other sectors, etc. CDR sort of started out as... Um, as having the, the sort of vision to be cross-sector economy-wide. And I think that's really great. Um, I, th- I think there are, there are challenges with rolling this out progressively. Like, it's a hugely political process. Um, from my perspective, there's a lot that uh, I think could be more inclusive uh, and participatory uh, in nature. Um, and like, as a for instance, right, so the... When we were hired to do some of the sort of CX, social science type work, um, delivering, designing and delivering programs of research to better inform how the consumer experience would work for the entire ecosystem, um, you know, utilizing our, our sort of models and methods for consent-based data sharing. Uh, it, was like, it was like almost a year after all the other work had started. Um, so it was kind of like the rules were predefined and the technical specifications were predefined. And so I think the ordering was a little bit, 
skew if like we, we probably should have led with some discovery work uh that would have been really useful now that we are you know a, a bit of a ways down the track and we still have a long ways to go we, we, there are lots of issues you know the cost to comply is a big issue it's a burden for startups um, one of the organizations i worked with very closely regional australia bank actually de- developed a bunch of open source tools um, through our collaboration uh, that, that are readily available for any organization that wants to um, ease their participation in, in CDR. So there's stuff like that that can make it easier, but still the cost to comply is a big issue uh, for smaller organizations, not so much for big organizations. Um, we, we, I believe, are missing out on just the, the, the richness of uh, and, and diversity of a more inclusive sort of co-design process uh, like what I would love to see for these type of uh, uh, pros, uh, the, the, these sort of major initiatives within a, a so-called democratic society is a more democratic process where where people from all walks of life are actively involved in uh, d- designing what this what this might actually look like. Um, and that doesn't mean everyone just gets in the room and goes through some design thinking process. I think that's probably a little bit limited, but rather there is infrastructure that supports experimentation and collaboration and and participation, active participation at scale, so that organizations of all kinds um, can come into the process, contribute, learn, so that uh, individuals from all walks of life can come into the process, contribute and learn. Uh, And we can design something that is more representative of the the people that that live and interact with each other in this society uh, and more representative of the type of digital economy and digital society that we want to create in the future. Uh, and look, I, I remain somewhat hopeful that that we start to see more of that flavor of work. But I'm but I'm I'm like an inherently skeptical person. I'm a, I'm an empiricist. I sort of build optimism through validation, and so I don't see a heap that leads me to believe that we are going to go in that sort of direction. But I know there's some really smart folks, there's some really passionate folks working on this, and uh, over time we may well turn this into something that, that that's incredible. Um, but like so much of what I've described today, it still feels very early and I think we have a long way to go. Yeah, uh, you mentioned there as well your work with Regional Australia Bank. Um, I'll be talking to Rob Hale actually from, oh, from cool. Regional Australia Bank uh, on the podcast very soon. And uh, awesome. I was just wondering, could, can you tell us any more about the work you, you did with that organisation and, and, and how that went? Yeah, look, I can. I, I don't want to steal too much of Rob's thunder because Rob's the best person to talk about that. Um, and Rob and I have become really good friends over the years. Uh, Rob's, a, Rob's a fantastic guy and a great leader. Um, so, so, yeah, look, we, we supported uh, Regional Australia Bank from um, kind of like relatively early in, in 2019 uh, doing, doing two things. Uh, better disclosure, which, which brings together the behavioral sciences with human-centered design and traditional legal practice to like radically rethink how information disclosures can work so that they, they actually do work. And that's a really important point. Uh, and we supported them on a bunch of CDR stuff, which was really exciting. And they were the first ever accredited data recipient. So it was a big deal. You've got this little mutual bank um, customer-owned bank from Armadale, like a like a regional, uh, very small regional city um, in in country New South Wales, uh, becoming the first accredited data recipient. It was super cool to be part of. It was super cool to be part of. And what's what's better is the whole process was really open and interactive. Like as we were as we were doing work and making progress, Rob through his interactions with all of the uh, all of his formal interactions with the CDR, the different parties involved, was sharing everything. 
Like it wasn't like, oh, we're going to keep this secret source for us because we're going to be the first and we're going to do all this great stuff. It was like, hey, here's what we're struggling with. Here's what we've been learning. Here's what we've done. You know, take it and use it or, or build upon it or whatever. And that was just really cool to be part of. Um, maybe I can touch uh, specifically on, on, on one thing that I think is of interest. And Rob and I have spoken about this together at events in the past um, was that uh, as part of the CDR, there, there is a requirement for um, accredited uh, parties to create what's referred to as a consumer data right policy, um, which is an information disclosure of sorts, a mandatory information disclosure of sorts um, that kind of just describes the purpose of CDR, its scope, all that different type of stuff, right? Um, and the, the, the formal uh, requirement was for it to be a static PDF. Uh, and uh, we don't have a great deal of time, but, but let me just highlight really quickly um, something that I think is in, uh, in, important as a preface in some ways. Information disclosures, typically, contracts as well, are designed to serve the party that designs them. They are very rarely designed to serve the people interacting with them. And I would be super happy to debate anyone that wants to contest that. I'm not saying that it is, it is like uh, night and day, uh, a binary thing, but that's pretty much the gist of it. Um, and if you, if you are skeptical about that, tell me the last time that you read and enjoyed uh, some type of contract that you were agreeing to online. Um, and the answer for most folks is, well, never, because I don't do that. And, and there's good reason for that. Number one, these aren't contracts where um, equal parties are coming together to establish a meeting of the minds, which is really what contract law is supposed to be about. Um, so we've missed the mark a little bit there. This is, um, <laughs> these are a set of conditions, rules, responsibilities, et cetera, that are pushed onto you that you have to accept or you can't move on. So the rational thing to do as an individual is go, I have no agency. I have no power. I still want the thing. I'm going to bypass this. And we refer to that behavioral phenomenon as the agreement bypass bias. Now that plays out everywhere. Now I'm not going to share the organizations whose data this uh, belongs to, but even in financial services context for loans, less than like 10% and sometimes it's as low as 2 or 3% actively read contracts. We're talking about loans here. That's ridiculous, right? Like I remember like my home loan, I did, you know, I did read through it all. Um, it was woeful, uh, you know, but, so, but, but tiny, tiny um, sort of percentages of the population. And on average, in, in, in one particular scenario that, again, I, w- I won't name the organization, the people that were reading were spending less than 60 seconds. You can't read that. Uh, like, you might be an impressive reader. You can't read and understand and then, and then make an informed decision in 60 seconds, right? So, so there's, some, there's some sort of justification that I think is worthy to discuss before we say, well, why do information disclosures need to change? In simple terms, they're not working, but there are, there are reasons why they're not working, and that sort of briefly describes it. So we looked at that, and we sort of said, well, okay, we've got to deliver a static PDF. That's a requirement. We will do that, but it won't be a normal PDF. It will be an awesome PDF, right? It'll, it'll be something that people are like, wow, this is really different, and, and you know, get, get almost a bit excited about, and, and we, I, I believe we delivered that. But we're also going to design a progressive one step at a time, interactive digital experience that helps people learn about this. And that's the main CDR policy. Um, and, and, and we did that. And uh, it, it is sort of a beacon of light uh, in many ways because it, it's the only disclosure of its kind in the CDR at present. 
Uh, but one of the really cool things, and Rob may talk about this. Rob, I'm sorry if you listen to this. Uh, I have stolen your thunder, my friend. Uh, but there's this re- really cool thing that we did, you know, because often we have quite um, empirical processes that we advocate for or practices that we advocate for when doing these things. We want to develop um, uh, bodies of evidence that are qualitative and quantitative across attitudinal and behavioral dimensions so that we can enhance the confidence with which we do things, right? You know, it's sort of like decreasing uncertainty, and that's important. Um, uh, in this particular case, we, we didn't design any, for lots of different reasons, budget, et cetera, um, we didn't design any crazy uh, measurement infrastructure. Um, but one of the things we did do at the end of the experience was add this simple rating system utilizing emojis like, like unhappy smiley face through to really, really happy smiley face. And of um, now I believe there's over a 1,000 folks that have, that have gone through the entire process and rated, um, you know, gone through the entire process and rated, uh, and the average is 4.9. I've never gone through a contract and would give it a 4.9 out of 5 ever in my entire life um, that I've been a, like a consumer of. So that's really cool in of itself. Is it is it an indicator that leads me to believe confidently that we've absolutely nailed it and there's no more work to be done? No, definitely not. But I think it's a marker, a proxy, if you will, for the fact that people appreciate the differentiation. Um, and I hope it's a sign of of much better work to come, you know, from from regional Australia Bank, but but so many others. Yeah, absolutely. Nathan, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. I know we've had quite a wide ranging discussion. We've covered data, Australia, everything in between, data ethics. uh, But I I really think that was absolutely fascinating. And um, uh, I guess we'll leave it there for today. But I'm I'm sure I'll uh, pick up with with Rob Howell where, where you've left off there when I catch up with him on the podcast. But Nathan, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks. Thanks again, Ellie. Talk to you soon. Yeah, talk to you really soon. And uh, thanks to everyone listening. We'll uh, bring you another podcast very soon. Uh, Take care. Goodbye for now.